Welcome back to another episode of the Alternate Oscars. I am your host, Gabe Guarin, and today we are taking a break from the usual schedule. Instead, we will be doing another bonus episode discussing the 1944 David Lean film, This Happy Breed, which tells the story of an interwar suburban London family against the backdrop of what were then relatively recent news events, moving from the post-war era of the 1920s to the gradual inevitability of another war and social changes such as the coming of household radio and talking pictures in the cinema. Joining me to discuss this film is returning guest Ronaldo Sosa. He was the guest on the 1930 episode, or you heard him gush about the F.W. Murnau film City Girl. Ronaldo, welcome back. Thank you for having me again. So, how was your day been? Like, how are you doing right now? Oh, it's, it's been okay. Like, like uh, when I watched the film today, and it's been like the first movie I've seen in about two weeks, because I've been watching it, doing other things. So, yeah, and that's why I've also been like not very active on Twitter lately. Uh, so, I guess I wanted to ask before before I asked you to um, discuss this movie with me, what was your familiarity with it? How much did you know about it? I only knew about it by name because uh, I know about David Lane, like I've heard of his early films. I had seen In Witches Serve and Brooklyn Encounter, which is a masterpiece. But I haven't seen, I hadn't seen this, and I hadn't seen Blight Spirit, and oh, I, I had also seen Great Expectations, but I'm not very familiar with his early work. I know more of the epics that he did later. Uh, I'm not too familiar with his work. I saw A Passage to India a long time ago. That was probably the first David Lean movie that I ever saw, and... I saw Lawrence of Arabia for the first time a few months ago. I've also seen In Which We Serve and Oh, Summertime. That was the other David Lane movie I've seen. Oh, yeah, I love Summertime. Yeah, really good. Such a fun movie. And I still need to see Brief Encounter, <laughs> embarrassingly enough. But I think that this movie would probably be a good jumping off point before eventually seeing that movie. Yeah, because so, it also has Leah Johnson. Yes. And not just her, but some other people who would work with David Lean in the future. You've got yeah, like, the usual crew that he worked with around this era, Anthony Havelock-Gowan, Ronald Neem, Noel John Coward. Mills. Yeah, John Mills. I think he's worked with Stan he also worked with Stanley Holloway on Brief Encounter. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But he has a very small role in that. Oh yeah. So yeah, I would imagine that this fits pretty comfortably into his um nineteen forties output. That yeah, because he did a lot of, of domestic dramas back then and then yeah. like around like, he started transitioning later in his career, and then after uh, Bridge in the River Quiet, like, he never went back and just make epic after epic after epic. Yeah. 
So, when watching this movie, what were your immediate thoughts about it? Well, I'll just I'll just start talking about the things that bothered me about it, and mostly it was the casting of the the younger people, because like they especially John Mills, which is that's like my biggest problem that I have with Great Expectations, because he's supposed to be playing a twenty-something-year-old, and he's like forty. He look he looks like he's. Oh, it looks like he should be having children right now and he's playing like a teenager or something and also like uh i forgot her name the one that plays queenie one of she's like only three years old younger than celia johnson and she's playing her daughter like that, that really bothered me but i i liked the film i thought the story was well it was well written the story was good i just I just didn't like the casting for some of the characters. Oh, if I wanted to talk about Kay Walsh, I think that she was, she probably gave my favorite performance from the movie. Like, Queenie was the character that I kept going back to. Well, yeah, I agree that she was good. I just think that she was a bit too old for that role. And I, she had like one of my favorite scenes in the movie, which is like, uh, uh, when they are about to go to the wedding of her brother and she's having like an argument with her parents and telling them like that she doesn't want to be like them that she wants to have a better life and that he wouldn't know anything because he's content living the way he is but she doesn't want that she wants something better yeah yeah that is a really strong scene from the movie and I just think that Walsh is the most effective in realizing her own individual character's arc. Not that the others aren't. Like, everyone makes their own contributions throughout this film. And it feels like a singular piece. And I think the scenes... Some of the scenes that... So, some of the scenes that stood out to me most were, like, when they were at the dinner table, arguing. That just feels like something familiar to me. And it's something that I have seen so many times, whether it be from any of my own personal experiences or just being in that environment or seeing that environment through other eyes. And it seems like those were Lean and uh, his co-writers, Ryan Neiman, Anthony Avalok, Gallen, are able to give a sense of realism to the family interactions. And also give some insight into, like, the mindsets of people in this time period, especially in Britain, and how they acted in the surroundings around them. And there's a really good sense of the location I got from this movie 
yeah, and watching it. Oh, you go ahead. No, I just I was just gonna say that this felt like what Cavalcade wanted to be. Yes. Yes. Like they're touching on very different like uh, historical events that happen and the way that it affects the characters, but but this is actually well done where Cavalcade is just boring. <laughs> yes, I was absolutely reminded of Cavalcade. And ironically enough, that's another Noel Coward play that was adapted into a film. I and... didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. And you can tell if you're really familiar with Noel Coward's output and the themes that he touches on throughout his work. And I found that he has a good feel for the complexities that are just a fundamental part of relationships, whether that be friendships or romances or familial relationships. Maybe not with Cavalcade, but his best work. No, but who and, knows? Because you know that they always change things for the film. Maybe the play that that Cavalcade was based on was good and they just messed it up for the movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, who knows? But yeah, this definitely this definitely feels like a better version of the themes that at least the movie Cavalcade was touching on. And I was also reminded of Mrs. Miniver mm -hmm. when watching this because two very similar war-themed movies set in Britain that are meant to like raise morale during the war and just like Mrs. Miniver, this movie, This Happy Breed, does have a bit of a propagandistic side to it. Yeah, especially like the last 10 minutes when yeah. like the war is about to start and the uh, the dad, I don't, sorry, I don't remember the name of the actress aside from Celia Johnson, but the dad has like this big speech about how the, how he saw how people, how the British people were reacting to all the, to the rise of fascism and that he was disgusted by that happening and that that's why he, he was in favor of the war. And yeah, and he was like telling his sister that's, that she's like a pacifist and she doesn't want anything. And so I'm like, oh, you're just an idiot. Oh, yeah. Mm. <laughs> I guess I didn't mind it in this film because it didn't feel like it was drowning the movie the way that it felt like it was suffocating Mrs. Miniver. Like, I recently listened to the most recent Awards Don't Matter episode where they discussed Mrs. Miniver and they brought up a lot of good points about there are two sides of that movie that felt almost at odds with themselves. Like, there's this more domestic drama where they have that flower contest and little moments like Mrs. Miniver being able to go into a hat shop and just casually buy and wear a hat before the war hit. 
and I'll admit I appreciated that side of the film more so than the obvious jingoistic rah-rah war scenes. Yeah, and I don't really mind Mrs. Miniver, and I, and I also don't mind it here because it isn't really the focus of the movie. They're more like about the family and how they deal with the things that happen. So I, I don't really mind it as much as I mind something like, uh, like that uh, movie. I think it's Sensibi Wajima that's just like a big ad for the military. <laughs> oh yeah, that's uh, Sensibi Wajima is another film that I saw a long time ago when I was a teenager. And yeah. So to be clear about Mrs. Miniver, it's fine. I I don't dislike it. I'll get into my thoughts later. Oh, yeah, when I you have to do that, that year. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, I would agree that the propaganda side is at least palatable here because that's just an aspect of the movie that gives it some context, I would argue. Even if you don't agree with what is being said, you at least get it. And I do appreciate that uh, a figure like Neville Chamberlain, his reaction to the war and his general complacency was not exactly sugarcoated. And I'm just reminded of a lot of what is going on nowadays. Yeah, and like this film felt very conservative for me in like the the values that it has because the this is the character of Sam, who's the guy that marries one of the daughters later in the movie, and when he's introduced, he's like a super socialist and he's like about the rights of the people and all of that. And then he gets married to Vi, I think it is, like the youngest daughter. And she, and then he's a, like, he becomes a salary man and he starts working and he, like, he, he conforms to society. And that's like a good thing later. Cause that's what Queenie says, that he became boring like everybody else. And ever and, and that that's what she was supposed to do, and she didn't. But then she got punished for being herself and for wanting the things that she wants. And she became my little housewife by the end. Oh, yeah. Um, I'll admit that's one aspect of the film. That through line... I guess if I gave it more thought, I would be more critical of it. And that message might understandably rub people the wrong way. And I guess I was invested enough in the characters and what was going on in the story that I didn't pay that much attention to it, but 
that aspect does feel very much of its time when it was much less cool to be a socialist and they were seen as they would often be seen as crazy for having these beliefs that would never happen you know and we're still kind of having these conversations today you know there are certain people who were just throwing around the world under the words radical socialist far left trying to scare people yeah um, a movie like this happy breed does kind of conform to that idea though not as extreme as some examples i guess no, it's fine for its time. Yeah. So, another aspect of the movie I really liked was the cinematography. This is a Technicolor movie, and for its time, especially, it looks stunning and gorgeous. Yeah, and I heard that that was like the one of the that three strip Technicolor was not very available in Britain, so they had to like do a lot of digging to find like enough film stock to make the film, and that they used a different method for shooting, and that's why it looks so different from the Technicolor movies that were made in Hollywood because it looks a lot le less like the colors are not as bright as they are in Hollywood movies. It's more toned down, but not like, you know, not dull, but looks more realistic than than the technical yes. that we're used to seeing. Yeah. A lot of the technicolor in uh, the 40s was, in Hollywood, was used for escapism. I'm thinking like something like Meet Me in St. Louis, also from 1944, which is by design very gaudy and just glowing fairy tale adventure. This happy breed uses Technicolor for realism. There are a lot of desaturated colors that actually look like real life, like the house. The color palette in the interior of the houses, they look real, like something you would see. I just remember a lot of nutty browns and just olive greens and the dark blues and it looks faded in a way that's appropriate, but it's still pleasant to look at. It doesn't look ugly by any means. Oh no, it looks great. And it's also like really well framed and like all the the way the characters are blocked in every shot. It, it looks almost like a painting every time. Like when you have like all the women sitting in the in the chairs and the so in the sofa and they're all like sitting and filling the frame. It looks it looks really like a picture, like almost a, like almost a painting of them there. And the way that the camera moves and like zooms in and out. 
and like the pans it's all like you can tell that he had every shot of the movie planned out beforehand and it wasn't just like pointing the, pointing the camera at people talking it, w it was all very planned <clears throat> yeah that is definitely something i noticed from the film like I guess the worst thing you could do as a filmmaker is be boring and uncreative with your, with your shots. And David Lean is certainly not that. From the films I've seen from him, like, you can tell that he cares about how just simple shots look. Like, are they engaging? Do they stand out? Just simple scenes of people talking to one another. Like, will they stand out? And they do here because of how well blocked each of these conversation scenes are. And yeah, it's just very nice to look at. And I like how the color is used for the transitioning throughout time because this movie span has a time span of, I 1919 think about, to 1939, 20 years. Yeah, 20 years. And I think the use of color does a good job to reflect that and convey the passage of time. Yeah, and like he, uh, David Lane was also was very good at that because you can obviously see it in the epics that he did later in his career, like his prowess, yeah. uh, like shooting things and the blocking and like however, like making a film look good. But also like, it, like he was also doing that in his earlier movies when he was just making domestic dramas like this and Great Expectations and you haven't seen it, but uh brief encounter looks gorgeous and there's like one shot in particular that i won't spoil but there's like like most of the movie is shot very conventionally like the camera is very straight pointing at people and and not that it's boring but there's like one shot when the camera like tilts and it's like so like like it's almost shocking when you see it because it's so like in tune with what the character is feeling in that moment Yeah, definitely. So, what would you say are your favorite scenes from the movie? Well, like I said, that scene before they go to the wedding and they have the discussion, like Slay Johnson and 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 their and their yeah. daughter. Yeah, and well, there's also like the scene where John Mills is first proposing to her and she turns him down. Like mostly the th the scenes with Kate Walsh because her character is the most interesting of them. Like everyone else, is pretty like standard. Yeah. Oh, and I also really like the scene when they find when they find out that about the car accident, and like the way that's handled. That they have like like cheery music playing in the background, like someone's hearing listening to music outside and you hear it while, while they're hearing like this heartbreaking news and you hear like this yeah. music in the background. That is such a good juxtaposition. 
Yeah, and you don't even see them find out because they're like outside and then Vi goes out to tell them and then they come in and they don't even say anything. They're just like looking out into the distance. Yeah. That is such a good moment. Like, there's nothing... There's nothing Hollywoodized about it. Like, you would expect a bigger reaction from if this was made in Hollywood as a standard melodrama, but... This is, a, that was a surprisingly frank and realistic depiction of an immediate reaction to someone's death. Like, sometimes you just don't even have any words to just, to express your grief. That scene was just, it's brilliant for that reason. And I guess we should mention that Celia Johnson is in this oh, yeah. as sort of matriarch of the family. She would receive an Academy Award nomination for a brief encounter. And yeah, which is like, like one of my favorite performances of, of all time. She should have absolutely yeah. won that Oscar in a cakewalk. She's amazing. I haven't seen her in that movie yet, but Olivia de Havilland was excellent in the each is to each his own i love that. olivia de Havilland. she's one of my favorites i would give her like two or three oscars whatever but that like there's not even a competition for me like Celia johnson oh, yeah. is like way above everyone else that year yeah i look forward to seeing that movie <laughs> but what did you think of her performance here i thought she was good like she reminded me of dorothy mcguire in a trick bros in Brooklyn because she's playing like the same kind of character. She's like the matriarch of a family. She like has to take care of the children and she's very stern and very strict with their children, but also like very, she cares about them a lot. It's a, it's a, it's a good performance, but she, she would do better things like later. I really like that she was able to work within a larger ensemble and didn't necessarily draw obvious attention to herself. Mm -hmm. And she has this sort of weariness to her eyes. And oh, yeah, I just got this sense that there was this history behind her and she just seemed worn down, but not in a negative sense. It added to her character. Yeah, like, she's really good at like facial acting, like just doing things with her face. And you'll see that when you watch Brief Encounter, you'll see like a lot of that movie is just a close up of her face, like just looking at something. And like you can see everything that's happening in her mind, just looking at her eyes. Yeah. I I still remember like that falling out scene between Celia Johnson and Kate Walsh when Celia Johnson basically disowns her daughter. Yeah, when she finds a letter. Yeah. And 
I think that's an effective scene for the performances from both Johnson and Walsh. Yeah, but Kate Walsh isn't even in that scene because they just found they just find a letter that she left after she goes out, and she and and Celia Johnson and her husband read it. Oh uh, yeah, but yeah, it's it's just a great performance from her, and I'm not sure I have any specific reference points, but it's just one of those great performances that could have easily like faded into the background but actually stands out in a positive manner because the commitment from every angle from the acting to the writing is just there in the character and Celia is excellent and What did you think about the other actors? I know you brought up complaints about John Mills and Kay Walsh being too old for their parts and... Yeah, but, well, I did say that Kay Walsh was too old, but she was good in the movie. Like, her performance was good. But John Mills, I just don't like him at all in anything that I've seen him. Like, he's the reason that I don't like Good Expectations. And he, like, thankfully, he's only in a little bit of this movie, so he wasn't like a big problem for me, but I just don't like him as an actor. I don't think I don't like him. And I haven't seen Ryan's daughter yet, which was the thing that he won his Oscar for, but I've heard that he's not good in that either. And I'm not <laughs> looking forward because that's like that's like three and a half hours and I I don't have the time for that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, and that's another David Lee movie. <laughs> yeah. Um uh, I'm not sure what to think of I haven't seen Ryan da Ryan's daughter either, and I'm not sure what to think of him playing village idiots. And <laughs> uh, I know that's not a popular win by any means. And it has its fans. Like some well, people like it yes. for some reason. <laughs> yeah. And I thought Mills was fine. He didn't. He didn't stand out that much from the cast, but he was okay for what he needed to do. Um, I know that um, some people like his performance in Tunes of Glory, and he received he won an award at Venice for it. And I guess I need to see that movie. The yeah, I haven't seen it either, but I'll I'll watch it someday. Yeah. Like that, that's uh, isn't Alec Guinness in that? Yeah. Yeah, I'll watch it for him. What did you think about Robert Newton as Frank? He was serviceable. Like, he was good. He, but he didn't really have much to do. He was just this supportive father. Like the supportive husband. And he was good at that, but he doesn't really have to do anything else or interesting. I like that. I liked him. Yeah, I liked him too, but he, yeah. he doesn't stand out much. I guess I would be a bit more enthused than you were. Like, he doesn't draw too much attention to himself, and the role isn't as developed, per se, as some others, but 
it is compelling on his part to see him as this father who's trying to hold his family, his family together, but not really succeeding. And you can see the sort of difficulties of coming out of the war and just trying to adjust back to normal life. And I really liked his scenes with Stanley Holloway. Yeah, they were fun together. Yeah. And they were like getting drunk, and then Celia Johnson yeah. comes down and like tells them like, "You go home, like you go back to sleep." And like, yeah, I think that was one of the scenes where Stanley Holloway's character, I think his name is Bob, shows support of. Uh, I think uh, his character shows support in Neville Chamberlain and his general ethos. Mm-hmm. And that is a good scene for what it is. I wanted to bring it up because Noel Coward had originally played Frank and wanted to reprise the role in the film, but David Lean said he shouldn't play that role because of his public persona as being witty and sophisticated and not at all like his lower class beginnings and Mm -hmm. he felt that would be too much for audiences to believe or accept. Yeah, they can suspend the disbelief. Yeah, I think he made the right decision. I feel like having someone less recognizable like Robert Newton he was more able to sort of immerse in, uh, immerse in the role. Yeah, maybe. But I, like, honestly, I don't really recognize Noel Coward. Like, he was really famous at the time, but I wouldn't really recognize him now. Like, I know his name, yeah. but I don't really know what he looks like, so I probably wouldn't even have known. <laughs> I have seen images of him, and... Like, and... I guess I've seen him in uh, in which we serve, in which he did act. Oh, yeah, he was in that, but I wasn't really paying attention to that movie. Yeah. Was that? <laughs> yeah. Um, wasn't exactly either. Uh, and then I guess I also saw him in a scoundrel, which um, I hated. In what? The scoundrel. I haven't seen that. Oh, it's a really bad movie, and you're not missing much. <laughs> But um, David Lean also offered the role of Frank to Robert Donatz. But he refused the role because he disagreed, he objected to the final speech delivered by his character. Oh, the one about the war, right? (laughs) Yeah. Like, yeah, he disagreed with that. So he was a pacifist? I didn't know that. (laughs) um, Well, he wrote in a letter to Coward, rightly or wrongly, I believe it is just that very political irresponsibility that got us into another war. Oh, well, maybe I'm I'm, I'm not as upset that he has an Oscar now. <laughs> He's in like a different person. Yeah. Like, 
Well, I I've liked Robert Donat in the movies I've seen him, so I can't get too mad at him being an Oscar winner, even if James Stewart absolutely should have won for Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, but I definitely get why he won, and I'm not mad at that win. No, I'm not mad at it either, because my favorite that year would have been James Stewart won the next year, so it's all good. Yeah. So, where would this rank for you among David Lean's overall filmography? Oh, I, I have a ranking of, of the films of his that I've seen, and I think I've seen nine so far. Yeah, I've seen nine, and it would be number five, because, like, I have a number one book encounter, then two is Lawrence of Arabia, three Summertime, four Bridge in the River Kwai, then This Have to Breed, then Great Expectations, then Dr. Zhivago, A Passage to India, and then last In Which We Serve. I don't have a specific ranking, but I think from what I've seen of David Lean, this would be up there, like in the upper echelon. I just like the sort of style that this movie employs, and I just like these sorts of intergenerational stories. Mm-hmm. And complicated familial relationships and just showing just ordinary events going on and there's just something about this movie that feels authentic in a way that some other propaganda pictures from this era didn't like this works better than something like In Which We Serve because it feels like David Lean and Old Coward put more time into developing the story surrounding yeah. the event. And I think that also like David Lean had more confidence by now as a director because In Which yeah. We Serve was like a code, uh, was co-directed by him and Noel Coward, but. Like when yeah. he made this happy breed, like he had a, a an image of my, in mind of what he wanted to make, and he did that. And he maybe was in, as influenced by what Noel Coward wanted to do. Yeah. And I guess other scenes that stood out for me would have are like the Charleston dance and like seeing some of the first talking pictures like scenes like those touch on a certain young adult's nostalgia maybe is that the right word oh yeah Just, that scene has a really funny line when they're watching the movie and like you know like the early sound movies had like a really awful sound and they're watching the movie yeah. and he's like oh i can't even understand what he's saying <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that is, yeah, that is a funny line. And do you have any uh, more uh, final thoughts on this film? Well, 
no, I, I just, I, I'm just glad that I watched it because it's always really interesting to see like this early period in David Lane's career because it's now like known for the epics that he did for Bridge on the River Kwai and Lovers of Arabia and Passage to India and all of that. But it's so, it's really like interesting when you see his early career and how different like the things that he was doing were. Yeah. It is interesting to contrast a film like this to something like Lawrence of Arabia, which is this big epic that has basically influenced every epic sense, including his own. <laughs> and yeah. that is just big on every level. And no, the runtimes. It, it has these big moments, like these big gestures, like big emotions, just, and the no prisoner scene, like just a point to one, like that is him coming to a front on every level, like just, just going there. And then something like this happy breed, I would argue almost you can see how you can kind of see how the director of this happy breed would go on to direct Lawrence of Arabia because it does yeah, feel like like the technical precision is still there just on a smaller scale yes but even on a smaller scale I feel like there is a level of ambition and yeah. a certain even though it's not exactly big feeling, there is a certain scope to it. Just inherent to the inter intergenerational storyline and covering so much, even under two hours. And I do appreciate that it is that a movie like this is capable of touching on so many real-life historical events, using them as backdrops for context to inform really compelling familial drama and how these characters are affected by these events. Yeah, with that said, this does make me more excited to see further and more David Lean movies like I know there are lesser known films of his like Breaking the Sound Barrier, Hobson's Choice. I think the the, uh, the former has a performance from Ralph Richardson that won a lot of awards but didn't get him an Oscar nomination. So, and I'm always interested in those performances. I got a lot of awards but didn't earn, uh, but didn't translate to the Academy Awards. So mm -hmm. I do look forward to seeing that movie just to see what it's like. Yeah, I, I plan to watch all of his films eventually. And I'm like halfway through because I, I don't know exactly how many he made, but like like 15 or 16, something like that. And I've seen nine already, so yeah. Yeah, definitely. Oh, and I also want to see Blythe Spirit because I've heard that Margaret Rutherford is really good in that. Oh yeah, that's that's another movie I've heard good things about, and it won 
by special effects at the Academy Awards. So, yeah. So, thank you, Ronaldo, for just agreeing to talk with me about this film. Thank you for having me back so soon yeah. after the first time. Yeah. So, how do we... Oh, yeah, sorry, and before we finish, like, I wanted to ask you why you wanted to talk about this film specifically. Oh, yes. <laughs> um, I guess it was... I just had a um, sort of week-long break in between the regular episodes, and I figured I wanted to talk about a movie I'd seen recently, and I thought this would be good just for sort of a brief discussion mm -hmm. in terms of our general thoughts and some of the things it's touching on. And I do think that I do remember that this was on your um, uh, watch list on Letterboxd. Oh, and yeah. I didn't remember. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and yeah, and I thought I just haven't been able to stop thinking about it. So, again, thank you for appearing. Uh, thank you for agreeing to discuss this film with me. So, how do we find you on social media? Well, I'm on Twitter at rsantana2024. And that's about it. I also have a Letterboxd account, and that's like linked in my profile, so you can find it there. But I don't really have anything else. So, um, as for me, you can find me on Twitter at GabeTheJoker with two underscores. You can find me on Letterboxd at Mr. Hulo. You can find me on Instagram at GabeCorn with an underscore. And be sure to follow the Alternate Oscars Twitter account at Alternate Oscars. I'm also a contributor for Keith Loves Movies. I'm currently writing a review for Baby Done a New Zealand comedy starring Matthew Lewis, a.k.a. Neville Longbottom from Harry Potter. So, be sure to rate and review this podcast for visibility's sake. Be sure to subscribe wherever you typically subscribe to podcasts. And until the next episode, sit back and relax, cheers and enjoy, and thank you for listening to the alternate Oscars. What, what's got into you? I haven't done anything wrong, have I? Well, I don't like being taken for granted. No girl does. How do you mean, taken for granted? You can't hold hands with someone all through desert love and the next minute expect them to treat you like the Empress of Russia. Don't talk so silly. Help me up! I'm not going to stay here to be insulted by me. Oh, no, no, I'm not insulting you. Sit down. It's all my fault. I'm in the way in this house. I always have been. You needn't think I don't know. It's a pity you stayed so long, then. Oh, Ethel, how can you? I'll leave tomorrow. I'll never sit in this house again. And a good job, too. Oh, well, I'll take your grandmother up to bed for heaven's sake. Come on, Gran, I'll help you upstairs. Stop crying, Sylvia. I didn't mean what I said. I'm an old woman, and the sooner I'm dead, the better. <laughs> <laughs>